Hey, it's Guy here, and I have a question for you. What do you think we can learn from chickens about work? Well, it turns out a lot about productivity, competition, ego, and even how we should rethink the pecking order when it comes to us. This episode is called The Meaning of Work, and it originally aired in October of 2015. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, some of us hate it, some of us love it, but most of us have no choice. We have to work. And you know who else does? Chickens. This is Margaret Heffernan. She writes about work. So this is a really interesting story that I came across. In a this is a story Margaret often tells the CEOs that she coaches. And it's about an experiment which William Muir did. He works at Purdue University. And he was really interested in what could make groups more productive. So Muir decided to experiment with chickens. He found one flock that was generally pretty productive, and he put it to one side, and he just left it alone for six generations, letting chickens do what chickens do. And then he created another flock, which was constructed of the individually most productive chickens that he could find. And how did he, like, figure that out? Well, it's really great working with chickens, because measuring productivity is terribly simple. You just count <laughs> eggs, right? <laughs> And um, and every generation, he would select the most productive to keep the flock going. Yeah. And at the end of six generations, he compared the two flocks. So he had, if you like, a super flock of super chickens that had been specially chosen. Yeah, these are like the Steve. This is like a team of like Steve Jobs and Jack Welch. That's and, right. Exactly. Yeah, right. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Right. Versus, you know, the good old worker chickens, yeah. as it were. Okay, so after six generations of chickens, Muir took his first flock of average good old worker chickens, and then he looked at the second flock of chickens, the super chickens flock, and he compared how many eggs each flock had laid. And what he found at the end of the experiment pretty much amazed him, and I think amazes most people who hear the story, which is the average flock was doing very well. They were all really plump, fully feathered, very healthy, and importantly, they were more productive than ever. Hmm. And the other flock, the super flock, all but three were dead. Wow. The rest had pecked each other to death. Bill Muir's chicken experiment has become legendary among social scientists because it's a kind of a parable. It's a, a window into human behavior and the way we work. And maybe also a lesson on how we could do it better, how we could rethink the pecking order. Margaret Heffernan told the story on the TED stage. Now, as I've gone around the world talking about this and telling this story in all sorts of organizations and companies, people have seen the relevance almost instantly. And they come up and they say things to me like, that super flock, that's my company. <laughs> or that's my country. Or that's my life. All my life, I've been told that the way we have to get ahead is to compete, get into the right school, get into the right job, get to the top. And I've really never found it very inspiring. I've started and run businesses because invention is a joy, and because working alongside brilliant, creative people is its own reward. And I've never really felt very motivated by pecking orders or by super chickens or by superstars. But for the past 50 years, we've run most organizations and some societies along the super chicken model. We've thought that success is achieved by picking the superstars, the brightest men or occasionally women in the room, and giving them all the resources and all the power. 
And the result has been just the same as in William Muir's experiment, aggression, dysfunction, and waste. If the only way the most productive can be successful is by suppressing the productivity of the rest, then we badly need to find a better way to work and a richer way to live. How did we get to this place where, you know, that, that super chicken model came to, to dominate? Well, it starts really early, right? So you have super chicken parents who want to get you into the super chicken gifted and talented group, right? And then the super chickens all kill each other to get into Harvard or Yale, right? And then they kill each other to get into Harvard Law, Harvard Business, blah, blah, blah. And by the time they get into work, they have been taught that their success must depend on the failure of others. And so you have then performance management systems, which are about identifying the high potentials, right, which is management speak now for gifted and talented. You have evaluation systems like forced ranking, which say, well, we're really going to promote the top 10%. And so, again, they're still in the system that's familiar to them, which is your success is contingent upon making the people around you less successful than you are. I mean, the irony is is that this kind of system that is sort of the model, Mm. uh, it does not lead to more productivity. No, it doesn't lead to more productivity. In fact, um, it leads to, I think, a catastrophic loss of productivity and creativity. But there's this belief that the only way you can make people successful is to make work a fight to the death. And then they scratch their heads thinking, well, we've done that and it doesn't work. Let's make the stakes higher. Let's introduce some money into this game. And of course, it gets more vicious still. Money might make you work harder, but it might not make you work better with other people. Because to do that, Margaret says, you have to build something called social capital. You can think of it as trust. Social capital is what gives companies momentum. And social capital is what makes companies robust. What does this mean in practical terms? It means that time is everything, because social capital compounds with time. So teams that work together longer get better, because it takes time to develop the trust you need for real candor and openness. And time is what builds value. When Alex Pentland suggested to one company that they synchronize coffee breaks so that people would have time to talk to each other, profits went up $15 million and employee satisfaction went up 10%. Not a bad return on social capital, which compounds even as you spend it. Now, this isn't about chumminess, and it's no charter for slackers, because people who work this way tend to be kind of scratchy, impatient, absolutely determined to think for themselves, because that's what their contribution is. Conflict is frequent, because candor is safe. And that's how good ideas turn into great ideas. Because no idea is born fully formed. It emerges a little bit as a child is born, kind of messy and confused, but full of possibilities. And it's only through the generous contribution, faith, and challenge that they achieve their potential. And that's what social capital supports. It is hard for people, right, um, yeah. to, to think of work as a social space. And you talk about this in your talk. You know, you, I mean, you're asked your whole life, right? Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> and, and, and work is treated as this individual pursuit. I mean, no, there's no little kid who's like, I want to work on a really functional team with a lot of social capital. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, and we're not graded for it and we don't get prizes for it. And yet, and yet, and yet. Anytime you see a huge business success, even, dare I say it, a huge political success, 
you see that at the heart of it is a whole bunch of people who were prepared to support each other, challenge each other, argue with each other, make trade-offs for each other. And one of the things, you know, that I found when I looked in other walks of life, you know, going to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, which is, you know, a drama school here in the UK from which you know, people like Alan Rickman and Fiona Shaw and all sorts of amazing stars graduated. You just you went know, there to go hang out? I went. Well, I went there to watch their auditions because I thought, well, if stars matter anywhere, surely it's got to be in showbiz. And I was just amazed because actually what all the teachers there were looking for were not these spectacular fireworks of individuals. They were looking for actors who had something to give each other. Because, of course, in drama, it's what happens between people that's really exciting. And when I talked to producers of hit albums, they said, oh, sure, we have lots of superstars in music. It's just they don't last very long. It's the outstanding collaborators who enjoy the long careers because bringing out the best in others is how they found the best in themselves. And when I went to visit companies that are renowned for their ingenuity and creativity, I couldn't even see any superstars because everybody there really mattered. And when I reflected on my own career and the extraordinary people I've had the privilege to work with, I realized how much more we could give each other if we just stopped trying to be super chickens. I mean, do you think about like something so simple, which is employees who love to show up to work mm. will just work better, right? But, but really, that's rare. It's rare yeah. when people love going to work and love working around the people they work around. But, but it's such a simple mm. solution to making a company more productive and better. Well, I think that's true. I think, you know, you need that great connectedness between people. But I'm also really struck again, you know, the large number of companies I work with and I'll say, you know, what's the driving goal here? And they'll say $60 billion revenue next year. And I look at them and I say, you have got to be joking. What on earth makes you think that everybody's really going to give it their all to hit a revenue target. You know, you have to talk to something much deeper inside people than that. You have to talk to people about something that makes a difference to them every day if you want them to bring their best and do their best and feel that you've given them the opportunity to do the best work they've ever done. Margaret Heffernan, she now mainly helps companies make work more meaningful and fun. Her TED book is called Beyond Measure, The Big Impact of Small Changes. You can see all of her talks at TED.com. More ideas about work in a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to the all-new Honda Clarity Plug-In Hybrid. When the battery runs low in your electric car, it's nice to have a backup plan. That's why the Clarity Plug-In Hybrid runs on electric and gas if you need it. Plus, it's packed with a premium interior that comfortably seats five adults, a full-size trunk, and the Honda Sensing suite of advanced safety and driver-assistive technologies. Find out more about the Clarity Plug-In Hybrid at clarity.honda.com. Thanks also to Goldman Sachs. For insights from leading thinkers on the state of markets, industries, and the global economy, listen to their podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. You'll hear discussions on a variety of topics with far-reaching implications, from venture capital fueling innovation to the global shift toward renewable energy. That's Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play, and at gs.com podcast. It's time for the Pop Culture Happy Hour Summer Movie Preview. We're predicting hits and flops, telling you what we're looking forward to, and helping you spend that ticket money wisely. Available right now from Pop Culture Happy Hour.
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, we're exploring ideas about the meaning of work and whether work is something we do because we love it or because we have no choice. There's a kind of attitude you sometimes see, a kind of us and them attitude. This is psychologist Barry Schwartz. There is the elite who want all this fulfillment from work, and then there's everybody else that just wants a paycheck, and we should organize work on the assumption that most people don't care what they do as long as they're paid for it. And I think this is a completely false picture. It matters to people doing these jobs, too. And it matters, Barry Schwartz says, because humans have this innate need to feel valued, to feel like what they do means something even when those jobs might not be the ones people necessarily want. Here's Barry Schwartz on the TED stage. Why do we work? Now, I know, of course, we have to make a living, but nobody in this room thinks that that's the answer to the question, why do we work? So we wouldn't work if we didn't get paid, but that's not why we do what we do. And in general, I think we think that material rewards are a pretty bad reason for doing the work that we do. When we say of somebody that he's in it for the money, we are not just being descriptive. <laughs> now, I think this is totally obvious, but the very obviousness of it raises what is, for me, an incredibly profound question. If this is so obvious, why is it that for the overwhelming majority of people on the planet, the work they do has none of the characteristics that get us up and out of bed and off toward the office every morning. How is it that we allow the majority of people on the planet to do work that is monotonous, meaningless, and soul-deadening? Now, the thing about work, says Barry, is that it wasn't always like this. People didn't think uh, in antiquity about whether work was fulfilling. People were craftsmen or farmers. Uh, the work they did was simply a part of their life and not divorced from it psychologically, not divorced from it physically. No one was wondering if their work was meaningful. They were just busy living their lives, functioning in the role that they played in the community. It was varied from one day to the next. It presented challenges that you couldn't anticipate. You needed to use your ingenuity. You needed to be flexible. You needed to learn from your experience. That was sort of intrinsic to the character of the work that people did. But for most people, work became something different when factories started to become the places where most of them earned a living, the places where they were given a very specific task. And did the same mindless thing over and over again, hour after hour, day after day. The kind of engagement and challenge and opportunity to learn was eliminated. And then, when the only reason you have to work is for a livelihood, now people start yearning for something more. So I think the reason people want fulfillment in work now is that the factory system did such a good job of taking fulfillment out of work for 200 years. One of the fathers of the Industrial Revolution, Adam Smith, was convinced that human beings were by their very natures lazy and wouldn't do anything unless you made it worth their while, and the way you made it worth their while was by incentivizing by giving them rewards. That was the only reason anyone ever did anything. So we created a factory system consistent with that false view of human nature. But once that system of production was in place, there was really no other way for people to operate except in a way that was consistent with Adam Smith's vision. False ideas can create a circumstance that ends up making them true. I mean, so Adam Smith was wrong. I mean, people don't just work for money. That's correct. And he knew it. He says in the classic, The Wealth of Nations, he says, the man whose life is spent in a few simple operations naturally loses the habit of mental exertion and generally becomes as stupid and ignorant as it is possible for a human creature to be. Now, the words I want you to pay attention to here is generally becomes, that is, this is not the way people are before they enter the assembly line. It's what the assembly line turns them into. So in this passage, he's essentially contradicting what he said in other places of the book, which is that people are basically lazy and they don't want to think and they don't want to expend effort. 
No, no, no. You put them in a factory and that's what they become. Enjoying your work, in other words, is about context, even if you have a job that could seem boring or meaningless. Because how you think about that job and how that work is valued, that could be the thing that really matters. So take, for example, janitors. There was a group of researchers at Yale who interviewed janitors at a hospital about their work. You know, vacuuming carpets and cleaning toilets and waxing floors and emptying trash cans. And what the researchers found was that these hospital janitors were doing much, much more than what was expected of them. They encountered Mike, who told them about how he stopped mopping the floor because Mr. Jones was out of his bed, getting a little exercise, trying to build up his strength, walking slowly up and down the hall. And Charlene told them about how she ignored her supervisor's admonition and didn't vacuum the visitor's lounge because there were some family members who were there all day, every day, who at this moment happened to be taking a nap. And then there was Luke, who washed the floor in a comatose young man's room twice because the man's father, who had been keeping a vigil for six months, didn't see Luke do it the first time, and his father was angry. And behavior like this from janitors, from technicians, from nurses, and if we're lucky every now and then from doctors, doesn't just make people feel a little better. It actually improves the quality of patient care and enables hospitals to run well. So they were doing things uh, that made them feel valued. Well, it's a feeling that you're valued, and it's more than that, it's a kind of objective awareness that you actually are doing something that is valuable. The hospital janitors who got real fulfillment out of their work, what they thought they were doing was not just mopping floors and emptying trash baskets. They thought they were making an essential contribution to the functioning of a deeply meaningful and significant social institution. The people in the hospital are there to cure disease and ease suffering, and their job was to play an absolutely essential role in that project. And so they were as much committed to the, what Aristotle would have called the telos of the organization, the proper purpose of the organization, as the, as the heart surgeons were. But not every janitor can choose to work in a, in a hospital. Yes, 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 absolutely. But I think you can create work environments where it takes us sort of a Herculean effort for people to f construe their work as meaningful and important. And you can create workplaces where it's easy. People need discretion in what they do. They need autonomy in what they do. They need to feel respected by their coworkers and respected by their supervisors. People need to feel like they can learn. All those things gets them engaged in the task. And most important, people want meaning in what they do. And the meaning comes often from the role that their work or their organization's work plays in improving the lives of uh, members of their society, of their community. Now, surely there are some enterprises that are not noble, but I think if you really see yourself as serving the community in any retail store you're operating in, in any call center you're operating in, I think you can find nobility in what you do. Psychologist Barry Schwartz, he has a new TED book out. It's called Why We Work. You can see more of his talks at TED.com. So what do you think? I mean, why do people work? People work for a ton of reasons. This is Dan Ariely. He teaches psychology and economics at Duke. We work for identity and fulfillment and a sense of connection with other people. There are just many, many things, many factors that get us to work. Money is one of them, uh, and maybe not even the most important one. Dan studies motivation, and like Barry Schwartz, He's interested in what it is besides money that gets people to care about the work they do and to work hard, even when the incentives aren't obvious. Here's how Dan explained it on the TED stage. If you think about it, there's all kinds of strange behaviors in the world around us. Think about something like mountaineering and mountain climbing. 
If you read books of people who climb mountains, difficult mountains, do you think that those books are full of moments of joy and happiness? No, they're full of misery. In fact, it's all about frostbites and difficulty to walk and difficulty of breathing, cold, challenging circumstances. And if people were just trying to be happy, the moment they would get to the top, they would say, this was a terrible mistake, I'll never do it again. <laughs> instead, let me sit on a beach somewhere drinking mojitos. But instead, people go down, and after they recover, they go up again. And if you think about mountain climbing as an example, it suggests all kinds of things. It suggests that we care about reaching the end, a peak. It suggests that we care about the fight, about the challenge. It suggests that there's all kinds of other things that motivate us to work or behave in all kinds of ways. And for me personally, I started thinking about this after a student came to visit me. This was a student that was a, one of my students a few years earlier, and he came one day back to campus, and he told me the following story. He said that for more than two weeks, he was working on a PowerPoint presentation. He was working in a big bank, and this was in preparation for a merger and acquisition. And he was working very hard on this presentation. Graphs, tables, information. He stayed late at night every day. And the day before it was due, he sent his PowerPoint presentation to his boss, and his boss wrote him back and said, nice presentation, but the merger is canceled. And the guy was deeply depressed. Now, at the moment when he was working, he was actually quite happy. Every night he was enjoying his work, he was staying late, he was perfecting this PowerPoint presentation. But knowing that nobody would ever watch that made him quite depressed. I mean, was that the thing, like this idea that it was all for naught that, that made him feel so deflated, even though the process seemed to be incredibly exciting? Yeah, and there are really kind of a couple of things here. One is that sometimes something happens after the fact and it reframes our whole experience. But the other thing is that it basically got him to be very demotivated moving forward. And, and I was thinking, you know, from a functional perspective, everything was good, just that his work was never going to see the light of day. Nobody was going to ever see that. Imagine you were condemned to write Facebook and Twitter uh, notes that nobody would ever see. It's just incredibly demotivating. And from that point, we started looking at small acts of meaning and how small acts of meaning can actually change how people value things. So Dan took this idea and he created an experiment to tease out how these small acts of meaning could affect someone's motivation to work. So the, the first experiment we did was with Bionicles. Bionicles are uh, kids' toys. These are kind of little Lego robots. I think, uh, you know, Transformers. And they're made from about 40 pieces. So it takes a couple of minutes to build them. And Dan and his team asked the participants in this experiment to build Bionicles in exchange for a diminishing pay wage. What does that mean? They came and we said, for the first one, would you like to build this for $3? If they said yes, we gave it to them and they build it for $3. And then we said, you want to build the next one for 270 And when they finished that, the next one for 240 and so on. And they did this to see whether there was like a magic number, you know, a number at which point each person would decide to stop building Bionicles. At what point is the pleasure of building a Bionicle and the money that they're getting from it not enough to compensate for their time? Okay, so that was one group, just building Bionicles for less and less money. But then Dan took a second group, a different group, and he gave them the same challenge to build Bionicles for a diminishing pay wage. For $3. And then we said, do you want to build the next one for $2.70? And when they finished that, the next one but for $2.40 and so on. this time there was a catch because as they were building the second Bionicle... We were taking the first one apart and putting the pieces back into the original box. Like right in front of them, that's cruel. Uh, yes, I know. <laughs> and when they finished the second one, we said, hey, would you like to build a third one? And if they said yes, we gave them the first one, the one that they built and we took apart. So it was kind of 
back and forth on the same two bionicles until they uh, basically had enough. And what we wanted to contrast was really the notion that what you're building is going to be temporary and destroyed soon compared to destroyed in front of your eyes. At the end of the experiment, Dan found that on average, the people in the first group built 11 bionicles. But the second group, the group who watched their bionicles being destroyed, they built just seven. They did about half as much work. I mean, that's statistically significant, very significant. It's not just statistically significant. It's a big difference, right? All of a sudden, you have to ask yourself, how much meaning helps motivate people to a higher degree? And the answer from Dan's bionicle study, people tend to be motivated to do more work if the work they put in gets results, results they can see. Soon after I finished uh, running this experiment, I went to talk to a big software company in Seattle. Can't tell you who they were, but they were a big company in Seattle. And this was a group within this software company that was put in a different building, and they asked them to innovate and create the next big product for this company. And a week before I showed up, the CEO of this big software company went to that group, 200 engineers, and canceled the project. And I stood there in front of 200 of the most depressed people I've ever talked to. And I described to them some of these Lego experiments, and they said they have felt like they have just been through this experiment. And I asked them, I said, how many of you now show to work later than you used to? And everybody raised their hand. I said, how many of you go home earlier than you used to? And everybody raised their hand. I asked them, how many of you now add not so kosher thing to your expense reports? And they didn't really raise their hand, but they took me out to dinner and showed me what they could do with expense reports. And then I asked them, I said, what could the CEO have done to make you not as depressed? And they came up with all kinds of ideas. They said the CEO could have asked them to present to the whole company about their journey over the last two years and why they decided to do. He could have asked them to think about which aspect of their technology could fit with other parts of the organization. He could have asked them to build some prototypes, some next generation prototype, and see how they would work. But the thing is that any one of those would require some effort and motivation. And I think the CEO basically did not understand the importance of meaning. But if you understood how important meaning is, then you would figure out that it's actually important to spend some time, energy, and effort in getting people to care more about what they're doing. And how would you start to do that, say, in your own work? Well, Dan's research suggests you might have already experienced it if you've ever built a piece of furniture from IKEA. I can't say I enjoy the process, but when I finish it, I seem to like those IKEA pieces of furniture more than I like other ones. The IKEA effect and what it can teach us about work. In just a moment, our show today, Ideas About Why We Work. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or phone. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com NPR. Thanks also to Untuck It. If you're wondering whether your shirt is too long to wear untucked, it probably is. Finding a shirt that looks good untucked has been one of the biggest problems in men's fashion for years. Untuckit.com has solved this problem by making shirts designed to be worn untucked. Untuckit shirts are designed to fall at the perfect length, and the right length means the right look. So visit Untuckit.com and use Radio Hour for 20% off because the right shirt will make all the difference. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, host of NPR's Embedded. 
And coming soon, we have a new episode about Scott Pruitt, the head of the EPA. It's a story about Pruitt's life in the Southern Baptist Church, how he handled a major pollution case, and why he sued the EPA 14 times. Just search for Embedded on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, why we work and ideas behind the meaning of work. And just before the break, we were hearing from behavioral economist Dan Ariely about something he calls the IKEA effect. And IKEA is a store with kind of okay furniture that takes a long time to assemble. And I don't know about you, but every time I assemble one of those, it takes me much longer. It's much more effortful. It's much more confusing. So Dan argues, precisely because you worked hard putting together that furniture, you actually enjoy the results more. You feel a sense of pride and ownership in what you created. So to study that idea, Dan set up an experiment. We asked people to build some origami. We gave them instructions to how to create origami, and we gave them a sheet of paper, and they built something that was really quite ugly. But then we told them, we said, look, this origami really belongs to us. You worked for us, but I'll tell you what, we'll sell it to you. How much do you want to pay for it? And we had two types of people. We had the people who built it, and we had the people who did not build it and just looked at it as external observers. And what we found was that the builders thought that these were beautiful pieces of origami, (laughs) and they were willing to pay for them five times more than the people who just evaluated them externally. Now, you could say, if you were a builder, do you think that, oh, I love this origami, but I know that nobody else would love it? Or do you think, I love this origami, and everybody else would love it as well? Turns out the builders not only loved the origami more, they thought that everybody else would love it more as well. In the next version, we tried to do the IKEA effect. We tried to make it more difficult by hiding the instructions. So now this was tougher. What happened? Well, in an objective way, the origami now was uglier. It was more difficult. Now, when we looked at the easy origami, we saw the same thing. Builder loved it more, evaluators loved it less. When you looked at the hard instructions, the effect was larger. Why? Because now the builders loved it even more. They put all this extra effort into it, and evaluators, they loved it even less. Because in reality, it was even uglier than the first version. Of course, this tells you about something about how we evaluate things. Okay, but when it comes to work, you know, and and finding meaning and and ownership in that work, I mean, how much of that has to do with the work environment and and how much of that is, you know, how a person is wired? Yeah, so, so think about motivation. If you take somebody who is, you know, working at the startup and they, they breathe and live and uh, enjoy everything they do, and then you take somebody who is basically on an assembly line doing something incredibly boring all the time, is this a personality difference? Was one of them born like this and the other one born the other way? Or could we have designed the environment and would switch them? And I think, yes, there are some individual differences, but a lot of it has to do with the kind of environments we create, the kind of work environment we create, and how much we allow motivation to come forward. If you think about Adam Smith versus Karl Marx, Adam Smith had a very important notion of efficiency. He gave an example of a pin factory. He said, pins have 12 different steps. And if one person does all 12 steps, production is very low. But if you get one person to do step one and one person to do step two and step three and so on, production can increase tremendously. And indeed, this is a great example and the reason for the industrial revolution and the efficiency. Karl Marx, on the other hand, said that the alienation of labor is incredibly important and how people think about the connection to what they're doing. And if you make all 12 steps, you care about the pin. But if you make one step every time, maybe you don't care as much. And I think that in the industrial revolution, Adam Smith was more correct than Karl Marx. But the reality that we've switched, and now we're in the knowledge economy, And you can ask yourself, what happens in the knowledge economy? Is is efficiency still more important than meaning? I think the answer is no. I think that as we move to situations in which people have 
to decide on their own about how much effort, attention, caring, how connected they feel to it. Are they thinking about labor on their way to work and in the shower and so on? All of a sudden, Mark has more things to say to us. So when we think about labor, we usually think about motivation and payment as the same thing. But the reality is that we should probably add all kinds of things to it. Meaning, creation, challenges, ownership, identity, pride, etc. And the good news is that if we added all of those components and thought about them, how do we create our own meaning, pride, motivation, and how do we do it for in our workplace and for the employees, I think we could get people to both be more productive and happier. And thank you very much. Psychologist and behavioral economist Dan Ariely, you should definitely check out all of his talks. You can find them at TED.com. So if seeing results or finding meaning or working collaboratively are all reasons behind why we work, what happens when the entire deck is stacked against you? when it seems like every single force out there is discouraging you from trying, how do you find motivation to try anyway? So maybe you've heard about the very low numbers of women employed by big tech companies. 16% of tech jobs at Microsoft held by women. At Twitter, it's 10%. At Google, 17 But when Steve Shirley started a tech company, 100% of her employees... Oh, yes, indeed. ...were women. It was a very exciting period. In fact, Steve Shirley... We'll explain her name in a moment. Steve had vowed from the beginning... It was a crusade for women. ...that her company would only hire women. It was a burning mission to keep it on the road. Okay, so her name? Well, my name is Dame Stephanie Shirley, which sounds very grand. But way back uh, in my past, I shortened my name from that. So really, I'm Steve Shirley. That's how I'm known. Everybody calls you Steve. Everybody calls me Steve. Signing your name Steve instead of Stephanie turned out to be an easier way to get your letters answered in the 1960s, because that's when Steve Shirley, as she is still known today, brought work to thousands of women in the UK. We were a very different sort of workplace. Okay, first, what Steve's company did... We would work with pencil and paper. It was basically a software company. And then we would convert it into code. Before there were personal computers. Which would then be punched onto cards or paper tape. Uh, and then it would be repunched in order to verify... The company would use math and statistics to model things like freight train schedules and bus routes and stock markets. So intellectually um, demanding that... Uh, you, you got this wonderful sense of achievement. And what Steve introduced back in the 1960s, aside from the idea that women could actually write code, was that it didn't necessarily matter where you did that work. Because Steve let the women who worked for her do it from home. We used to ask job applicants, do you have access to a telephone? In those days, not everyone did. I had a party line, which is sounds rather fun, um, but it meant that I shared my home telephone with some other poor soul. It was a different world. And you were doing this before email, before fax machines, before Well, Skype. we did have the simple telephone, and we had the enthusiasm of, of women being offered something really exciting, not particularly well-paid, to be honest, because we were living on a shoestring. Um, but uh, I think it made a lot of other organizations consider whether there were different models of getting work done. Steve Shirley managed to build this company at a time when women in the UK couldn't even open a bank account without their husband's permission. Here's more of Steve Shirley's story from the TED stage. Let me take you back to the early 1960s. Uh, although women were then coming out of the universities with decent degrees, uh, there was a glass ceiling to our progress. And I'd hit that glass ceiling too often and so started to challenge the, the conventions of the time. 
even to the extent of changing my name from Stephanie to Steve in my business development letters, so as to get through the door before anyone realized that he was a she. I recruited professionally qualified women who'd left the industry on marriage or when their first child was expected and structured them into a homeworking organization. And we pioneered the concept of women going back into the workforce after a career break. We disguised the domestic and part-time nature of the staff by uh, offering fixed prices, one of the very first to do so. We pioneered all sorts of new flexible work methods, job shares, profit sharing, and eventually the work came in. So think of the drive, the chutzpah this took, right? To have started a business on her dining room table. Oh, I was described as aggressive. Huh. And, you know, sort of a man might be assertive or, or have gravitas, huh. but I was, I suppose I've always been a bit aggressive. <laughs> And yet, year after year, her company grew. So once it was known that I was hiring women to decent, part-time, flexible work opportunities, I had a flood of people coming in. And Steve's team of women programmers were able to keep up with the growing demand through the 60s and 70s as more and more companies in the UK started to automate their work through computers. And it gradually got much more into systems work, business design, choosing equipment. I did work contracts seven days a week. I did sleep occasionally. I did very little else. And so the business began to take off. I love business, really. I mean, because most of my contemporaries are playing bridge or golf, and that's not me. That just seems boring to you? Irrelevant. When I started my company of women, um, the men sort of said, how interesting, because it only works because it's small. And later, as it became sizable, they sort of accepted, yes, it is sizable now, but of no strategic interest. And later, when it was a company valued at over $3 billion, and I'd made 70 of the staff into millionaires, they sort of said, well done, Steve. <laughs> you can always tell ambitious women by the shape of our heads. They're flat on top for being patted patronizingly. When you were at the company and sort of really building that business, what motivated you, what propelled you? Again, I think it was a lot of the sort of feminine thing that having started a company, in no way was I going to fail. So even in the 1970s recession, where we nearly went out of business, I was so proud that women could do this, that, in, that somehow or other I always stuck in there. I mean, I feel I'm so lucky because I have done what is in me to do. But sometimes the will to work hard grows out of our hardest experiences. And in Steve Shirley's case, from childhood, she wasn't actually born in the UK. And when she was just five years old, as a little girl in Austria, the Nazis marched in to occupy her country. And suddenly, Jews like her were in danger. All that I am stems from when I got onto a train in Vienna part of the kinder transport that saved nearly 10,000 Jewish children from Nazi Europe. I was five years old, clutching the hand of my nine-year-old sister, and had very little idea as to what was going on. What is England, and why am I going there? I was lucky, and doubly lucky to be later reunited with my birth parents. But... Sadly, um, I never bonded with them again. But I've done more in the seven decades since that miserable day when my mother put me on the train than I would ever have dreamed possible. And I love England, my adopted country, with a passion that perhaps only someone who has lost their human rights can feel. I decided to make mine a life that was worth 
saving. And then I just got on with it. I mean, this idea that you went through life thinking, I need to make my life a life that was worth saving, that's a huge burden to carry. But other people have equal drivers. You know, the musician who is determined to finish up in Wigmore Hall or the artist who starves in the garret because he's determined to to make some wonderful sculpture that nobody else wants. Um, But there's a passion involved in in doing a really good quality piece of work that's better than you've done ever before. This this really gives a drive to, to the individual. It's what makes us human. Animals don't work. It's one thing to have an idea for an enterprise. But as many people in this room will know, making it happen is a very difficult thing. And it demands, really, extraordinary energy, self-belief and determination, the courage to risk family and home, and a 24 by 7 commitment that borders on the obsessive. So it's just as well when I'm a workaholic. I believe in the beauty of work when we do it properly and in humility. Work is not just something I do when I'd rather be doing something else. So what has all that taught me? I learned that tomorrow's never going to be like today and certainly not going like yesterday. And that made me able to cope with change, indeed eventually to welcome change. Though I'm told I'm still very difficult. Thank you very much. Dame Stephanie Shirley, or as everyone calls her today, Steve Shirley. She did all these things, by the way, and raised a child with autism. Steve now spends her time and her considerable wealth on autism-related philanthropy. You can find out more about her and see her full talk at TED.com. Whistle while you work. Put on that grin and start right in to whistle loud and loud. Just hum a merry tune. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on the meaning of work this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Janae West, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Jalisa Jones. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. We love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, send us an email at tedradiohour at npr.org. You can follow us on Twitter. That's at Ted Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the Ted Radio Hour from NPR.